Thank you, Howard. Good morning. Um, y'all come on in. We've got uh, 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 several orders of business before we do the lesson. First, I don't see Charles here this morning, but I want to make sure I say thank you to him. Uh, we're still caught up in trial in New Jersey, but our oldest daughter, Gracie, did the national cheerleading rah-rah thing in Orlando last week, and by Charles filling in for me, it enabled uh, me to go to Orlando uh, and see her compete, which was nice. And um, they won first place, which is a neat deal. <clears throat> Although I looked at all those trophies, it looks to me like everybody wins first place if you go. So I'm not <laughs> she's not in here. I wouldn't have said that if she were, but I was really proud of them. Um, the, uh, uh, but I want to thank Charles. I also want to thank all of you for praying for me and uh, uh, my family during this trial. Uh, it's been a very long, hard-fought trial. Um, uh, we uh, uh, are still fighting right now. Tomorrow is closing argument. And in New Jersey, unlike Texas, I'm used to, in Texas, the plaintiff goes first, and then at the end you have the itty-bitty rebuttal. Uh, in New Jersey, the defendants go first. So I'll start tomorrow after lunch. Uh, so if you think about it, uh, 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 I appreciate your thoughts that I don't like um, fall or something while I'm speaking. Um, it's been a, a dramatic trial. There's been a lot of fighting going back and forth. Y'all would be real proud of me because I've tried to fight like a Christian, um, which means I've tried to be real honest. Uh, uh, <laughs> other than that, uh, no. <laughs> the, uh, I got a, uh, uh, my clients came to me Thursday morning, and this is just a small bit of irony in this trial. Before the trial started, um, I complained to the judge and I said, Judge, I, I feel like the defendant, which in our case is uh, the drug company Merck, I feel like Merck is really trying to unfairly influence the jury pool and, and ultimately the jury. And the judge says, why is that? And I said, well, I have discovered that they've allocated millions of dollars to saturate the TV market and the radio market with these advertisements about how Merck is a science-first company that, that puts patience over profits and and the ads have no purpose other than to boost them as being a wonderful company I said and then I found out also they've gone to all of the doctor's offices in the entire county and put these brochures in the lobby um, reception areas for the doctor's office about how they'll give away free medicines to anybody who can't afford them I said to me that's just a deliberate attempt to pollute the jury pool and Merck says oh judge we have a First Amendment in America we're entitled to say anything we want to and the judge says, well, yeah, I guess you are. And the judge looked at me and said, what can I do about it? And I said, I don't know, but I'm, I don't like it. <laughs> and the judge says, well, I, I can't do anything. That's the First Amendment. And I said, well, okay, but I thought I'd just try. So then on Thursday, we had an abbreviated court session on Thursday because Merck rested <clears throat> right at about lunchtime. And so the, the jury went off, and, and me and my crew, we went to eat lunch before we went to the airport and uh, to fly home. And, and we're eating lunch, and I get a phone call from the AP reporter, John Curran, who's been covering the story and the case. And he said to me, he said, Mark, I showed up late today. And I says, yeah, I didn't see you this morning. He said, well, everybody's gone. I says, yeah, we've finished. And he said, well, uh, what am I going to ride on? I said, well, I, I don't know. You can ride on 
what we're eating for lunch. That's the only thing in my brain right now. He said, no, 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 tell me how you feel about the case. I said, well, I don't know. You know, I can't get in the jury's mind. I'm real satisfied with the way it's gone in and all. And, and I said, I think the jury's been paying really good attention, and I think the jury's uh, uh, really, really smart. I'm impressed at the way the jury's been. In New Jersey, jurors get to ask questions. And I said, I'm impressed at the questions they're asking. And I'm thinking, you know, Merck the day before put a story in the newspaper that ran locally about how it looked like they may lose because it's a stupid jury. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, you know, yeah, you know, that A, that just really miffed me. B, I didn't like him saying to the jury, you're stupid if you vote for Lanier, but if you're smart, you'll vote for Merck. And so I said, you know, I think this jury's really smart. I think they see through the blah, 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 blah. So he said, well, how's your client feel? And I said, well, funny, you should ask. Just this morning, my client gave me letters to give to the judge for the judge to give the jurors when the case is over. Because in New Jersey, we're not allowed to talk to the jury after they're through. And he said, really? I said, yeah. I said, they're just letters thanking them for their service. Because my clients wanted the jury to know how much they appreciated the, the attention that the jury paid without even knowing how the results came in, whether we win, lose, or draw. And so we've given those letters to the judge. Well, the reporter seems to have written that up. <clears throat> so Friday. <laughs> I, I honestly, I promise you, if I had thought about it, I probably would have done it. But I didn't think about it. <laughs> I really, I really didn't think about it. I'm sitting there eating my sandwich while I'm just kind of talking to John Curran. So Friday, I'm at the office, and I get an emergency phone call from my lawyers that are doing hearings, and the bad guys, Merck, have moved for a mistrial, saying, I've tried to influence the jury improperly <laughs> by getting this message out in the media. And, of course, the judge tells the jury every day, don't read anything you see in the paper about this and blah, blah, blah. And I'm sure the jury's following her instructions. So I said to my guy, I said, uh, Rick, I, I want a hearing. I want to go on the record, and, and I, I will attend by telephone. So he goes to the court and says, Lanier wants a hearing on this. So the judge sets up this hearing, and I appear by telephone. And the Merck lawyers, I just wanted to hear them bleed. And they bled like a stuck pig, just, <laughs> And my response was, uh, uh, Mr. Lanier, what do you have to say? I said, First Amendment. <laughs> so, anyway, um, it's been an eventful war. Um, I said, yeah, it just kind of hurts, and I didn't have to pay for mine. Um, <laughs> if you need a lesson, Mark Craver's got some more. Uh, uh, you've all been very patient with me during this trial. My lessons and presentations have suffered some, and, and I appreciate everybody's uh, willingness to show up anyway. Uh, uh, this was one, I woke up yesterday morning at 3 in the morning. I've been waking up at 3 every morning anyway for court. So I wake up yesterday at 3 and I get up and I start doing the lesson and I'm cranking it out. And uh, uh, Becky says to me, she says, well, what are you going to do tomorrow? It's daylight savings time. Is that going to really throw you off? I said, no, I can sleep in. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, I've been waking up every morning at 3. Tomorrow, when I wake up, it'll be 4. And I'll really feel good about life. Uh, so... I slept in until 4 this morning. I'm really excited, um, but uh, we'll be leaving right after this, this uh, class to go back up there. So thank you all very much for your concern and your prayers, and hopefully next week I'll be plugged back in. Let me tell you where we're going next week. Uh, I don't know. 
Um, okay, now, let's, no, I suspect, because we don't have class on Easter Sunday, I suspect there are a few things that we've, we've we're, this is kind of cleanup time. I'm trying to get us to where Constantine kind of declares Christianity the state religion. Not kind of, he does. And, and, and I'm trying to get us there, and we've got some cleanup to do before we get there. And one of the things that we need to clean up on is the origin of Easter celebration, Christmas celebration, um, we won't do the 4th of July because that doesn't come for a long time. But, uh, <laughs> you know, where do these holidays come from? Because they're celebrating Easter in the 100s. They're not just celebrating it. The church is fighting over it. Uh, how you set it up. Do you do it by the Roman calendar or do you do it by the Jewish calendar and blah, blah, blah. So the church is fighting over these things. We will look probably next week at those, which also gives me a chance to answer a few of your questions that have been piling up because I haven't dealt with them. But one of the questions that I got was, why do Catholics, Catholics eat fish on Friday? And I'm sure all of you are thinking, I probably want to know. You know, 1962, Roy Kroc, McDonald's, he introduced the filet of fish because their sales were dropping on Friday of hamburgers. He needed something for the Catholics to eat, right? So we're going to, you know, it predates Roy Kroc in 1962, um, but we'll talk about maybe that and a couple other things because it fits in with the Easter story a little bit. So uh, that will probably be next Sunday. We'll do the holidays. We've still got some other cleanup areas to do. Y'all have been very patient. I'd like to try and put us into context of where we are. We don't have a lot of time for this, but we'll move through it uh, pretty quickly. We started out our first class. We talked about God's timing for the church and how the church was exquisitely timed. God wasn't off a century here or a century there. And all the time the Jews had been wondering and praying, where will the Messiah come from? When will the Messiah come? When, when, when do we get Messiah? God's patient timing. The Messiah came on the right day, at the right moment, in the right place, in the right time of history. And God's timing was, was incredible to take a backwater Jewish renewal movement that didn't even capture the power of Judaism. It was Jesus at the end all by himself on a cross with maybe John and his mother at the foot. But not even Peter would follow him to the cross. And it's Jesus and a select handful of people in 30 A.D. when God's Spirit comes and whoosh, adds 3,000 to the church on that first day in Pentecost. You go from 12 or maybe 20, if you count some of the others, to 3,000, bam, like that. But even still, you're 3,000 in a backwater place of the Roman Empire. And somehow, over the next 100 years, this church has spread to all branches of the known world. And somehow, over the next 100 years, it gets so large that the Roman emperor doesn't know what to do. And somehow over the next 100 years, within 300 years of its beginning, it has taken over the Roman Empire. That's huge. So it was God's timing that made it possible. Then from there we looked at the apostolic fathers. These are the first generation of people from the apostles themselves. We looked at Clement, a bishop at Rome, in the letter he wrote to the Corinthian church. We looked at the Didache, which is a, a, an early church training manual. We looked at Ignatius, who was on his way to be martyred. 
And so we include him also with the martyrs. We looked at Ignatius and his writings to the seven churches on his way. We looked at Polycarp, one of the, the big noteworthy martyrs, and, and, and got to focus in on how his martyrdom came about from contemporary records of it. Um, we looked at the heresies that were unfolding in the church within a hundred years of the church itself. Gnosticism, we spent a couple of weeks on. Montanism, an early charismatic movement we looked at. Then we looked at the scripture itself over the last couple of weeks. The Old Testament and the New Testament and how those developed. And what we've kind of done, if you follow the timeline, is we've made it up through and we're almost out of the 200s. But today... We, 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 we neglect something significant that happened in that first full century after the founding of the church if we don't look at the apologists. Okay? That's a goofy word. We have apologies here, right? I mean, um, uh, you know, Lewis is probably apologizing to Michelle five times a day um, <laughs> for all the stuff he does. And... and but that's a different kind of apology. The apologist, that's a theological term. If we were in seminary, it's a word we would be familiar with and we would study. The apologist, there are three of them in this time range. One, Justin the Martyr. Martyr's not his last name. It's so we know which Justin it was, okay? Justin Martyr. The other is Athenagoras of Athens. Um, uh, uh, he's... Uh, um, He's an apologist. And then Theophilus of Antioch is the third. I'm not going to spend much time on Athenagoras and Theophilus. Uh, I want to spend my time on Justin Martyr. And, and much of what we learn through Justin Martyr is, in a sense, applicable. We may talk about Athenagoras a little bit later when we deal with some other stuff. Anyway, put it on the back burner for now. Apologist. This is not people writing an I'm sorry card. Okay. It is not an I'm sorry card. The apologist is someone who's writing a speech or writing a letter or writing a dissertation or writing a defense. It comes from the Greek word apologia. You can see how we get apology, apologia. Okay? An, an, an apologia is a speech that's given in defense. In a sense, tomorrow when I defend my clients in court, I will be giving an apologia in the Greek sense. I will be giving a defense on their behalf, a speech, an argument. So an apologist in the early church is someone who's defending the church, defending what the church is about, all right? When we talk about the apologist, it's important we look at them. We're talking about people who are defending the church. Now, remember the setting for the church. The church is being persecuted. The persecution includes martyrdom. People are being fed to lions. People are being burned at the stake. People are being beheaded. People are being martyred on a regular basis by both the, the official government, the Roman Empire, and even by local governments. In addition to the martyrdom, there's a great deal of slander going on about the church. In the middle of the second century, the church is being reputed as being incestuous, as being cannibalistic, as being... Uh, uh, sexually uh, 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 just outrageous. And, and some of that is even understandable because the heresies, the, especially the Gnostic heresy, allowed and even encouraged profligate living. Living for sin and debauchery and reckless abandon. 
statement and claiming to be Christian the whole time. The church itself, of course, would have nothing to do with that. The pure church, not the pure church, that's not a good, the orthodox church would have nothing to do with that. But the heretical churches, they would, they would, Christians, they would do it all and claim Christianity the whole time. And that would further the rumor mill and the slandering. So within this concept comes this fellow named Justin and other apologists like him, and he cares about what people think about the church. He cares about what people think about the church. I don't want people to think that we're a bunch of idiots. I care about how people think about the church. I want anybody, anybody who has any questions about our church, do you know what I want them to do? Come. I want them to come meet y'all. I want them to, to see the love. I want them to see the, the, the devotion. I want them to see the, the, the caring. I want them to see the good fruit of Jesus Christ in your lives and in our church. I'd love them to hear what Scott had to say this morning. I'd love them to hear the worship, even without Dick Hill here. The phenomenal worship. Those of you who give of your time to be in choir and to be on praise team or to be in the, the, the band or whatever we call it. I'm from the Church of Christ. We don't really have a word for that. <clears throat> I guess it's banned, okay? Um, but I want them to see people using their talents to glorify God. And I want to thank you who, who do those things. But I want to thank you who come and just care for each other, whether you're involved in that or not. Because that is a testimony of what is really going on in the body of Christ and how His Spirit moves in our midst. And it overcomes the slander that's out there. I cringe over some of the perception of the church. I cringe over the idea that we are just some political voting block who care about no one. I cringe over the idea that we're some harsh, judgmental, um, we're right and everybody's going to hell and we're kind of gleeful about it kind of people. Because I know y'all. And that's not the way we are. And so I'm impressed that Justin Martyr cares about not just the treatment of the church, but the perception about the church. And so when he writes his apology... He doesn't just write to say, um, quit killing us, please. But he writes to also say, we're not what you think we are. Let me set you straight. And then, I just love this. You've got to realize, this letter that we're going to be looking at in close detail, he writes to the emperor of the Roman Empire. Okay, He writes to the guy on top. And he basically writes to say, hey, if you're reading this, let me give you a shot at conversion. <laughs> He's not going to end his letter without saying, you know, if you really were using your brain, you'd be a Christian too. It's wonderful. So this is Justin Martyr. I'm not sure if that's really him. It's an icon, so it's painted by somebody. And, and in fact, I'm sure it's not him because it's painted in the last couple hundred years. But he's got the philosopher's robe on, 
which is what you'll always see Justin Martyr wearing in the paintings. Justin Martyr was born in a town called Nablus, Palestine. It's in the West Bank. It's under the control of the Palestinian Authority right now. It is still there. It's, uh, uh, that's a, a, a picture of Nablus right now, if we were to go look at it. He was born there. It's right here in the West Bank. This is Israel. That's the Palestinian West Bank where they fight over control right now. While he was born in Nablus, it wasn't, and if we put it into the whole uh, Mediterranean world, it's right over here. It wasn't always Nablus. You can read about the town in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it was Shechem. That's where Joseph, you remember one of the kids of uh, Jacob, Joseph, you know, Pharaoh, all of that stuff. Ten Commandments, Joseph, buried in Shechem. Joseph's tomb is uh, still supposedly there and, and people go to it. I don't know that it's been unearthed to see if that's really his tomb. But the Bible tells us he was buried in Shechem. Shechem became part of Samaria. 126, it was destroyed by the Roman invasion, but it was then rebuilt and it was named Flavia Neapolis. And in fact, Nablus still comes from the Neapolis um, it was the new city of Flavius. Neapolis means new city. Um, so it was the new city of Flavius, named after uh, uh, Flavius, the emperor. And, and now it's just called Nablus, and that's what it's called. Um, Justin was born there. He was not born in a Christian home. And he wasn't a, 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 a Samaritan in the sense that we think of that biblically, even though that was a Samaritan area at that point in time. He's born around 1000, I mean 100 A.D. We don't know exactly when. And he's born, his daddy has a Latin name, as Justin is a Latin name. His grandfather, we know his name, uh, it was a Greek name. So, so this guy comes probably from Greece at some point in time, maybe when the city was resettled, they came in. But Justin was a philosophy student. Now, one of my dearest friends in the ministry is Jeff Shreve. I love Jeff to death. And I want Jeff to be here today to listen to this lesson, but I'm sure he's back home preaching, though I understand he blew his knee out, which means now I can probably beat him in racquetball <laughs> for at least the next week. Um, Jeff hates philosophy. He says, but he doesn't really. He thinks he hates it. I thought I hated food for a long time, certain kinds of food. I thought I hated broccoli till I ate it. Turned out I kind of like this stuff, especially if it's got all that cheese sauce on it. <laughs> it's like uh, vegetarian nachos. Um, the, uh, uh, <laughs> I eat that healthy broccoli with all that cheese cream sauce. Um, Justin was a philosophy student. Now, what's a philosophy student? Some of us run from philosophy just because it sounds so nasty. Philos means a friend. Sophos means wisdom. A philosophy student is a friend of wisdom. What philosophy does is it asks questions. Questions like, why is life the way it is? And what should I be doing with it? Now, if you want to muse on that and think about that for a moment, you're thinking about philosophy. And I want you to take a break. Look, I get you unless you've got to go for the next 22 minutes. So just take a break. Check out from life for a minute and think about this. Let's be philosophizing in class. Why is life the way it is? 
Huh. Well, what's my, what do I do in this life? Well, Justin started going to all the different philosophy schools trying to figure it out. And the first school he went to was the Stoic school. And the Stoics, the Stoics thought that the key to life is escape from emotion. The key, you know, you think about all the emotional turmoil. Who's ever had emotional turmoil? Okay. Who enjoys it? Just about 10 of you. Um, do you know how to get away from emotional turmoil? Turn off the emotions. Just have none. Just live out of the brain, not out of the heart. Recognize none of that matters anyway. And, and, and just be a stoic. Think Spock. And stay numb. And if you're having trouble doing it, then get liquored up. It'll help you stay numb to the feelings. You don't need to feel anything. Just stay numb. Don't be caring. You start getting caring, you're going to get hurt. The Stoics just stay removed from all of that and just think. So he tried Stoicism, but it wasn't really there. Then he tried peripatetics, the peripatetic movement. It comes from the Greek for the colonnade that uh, Aristotle used to walk around when he was teaching. And it almost, by the time that he's there, it means almost, uh, by the time Justin's there, it means almost Aristotelian thought, but it's more the idea of walking around. You don't stop. You, you're constantly able to move. Get busy. Stay busy. You want to know what life's about? You want to know the meaning of life? You want to know how you fit it? Just stay real busy. You stay busy enough, you don't have to worry about that stuff. You know, have you seen the rats on the wheels? Whoo, talk about going places. They can go fast. Of course, they never leave the cage, but they got to feel really good about it because they're running and running and running. So stay busy. But busyness doesn't ultimately provide all those answers of life, and they didn't for Justin any more than just being numb to the world and stoicism. So he decided maybe the Pythagoreans had the answer. The Pythagoras hypothesis, remember it? C squared equals A squared plus B squared. You remember that one? Okay, Pythagoras lived in like the 400s B.C. He was a Greek mathematician slash philosopher. And how's a mathematician a philosopher? Easy. What he thought was that, that everything, the sense, what life is about is all expressed in mathematics and numbers. He would love living today. Do you know why? Almost anything we've got can be expressed with ones and zeros digitally in a computer. And he thought the universe was that way. He said two plus two is four. It's a constant. It's always four. It just as sure as two plus... And, 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 and he was really into the mysticism 
numbers and their mystical qualities and characters. Because if he wanted something and you wanted to understand, Pythagoreans, if you wanted to understand emotions even, or, or, or something of significance, they always figured out a way it affected things numerically. You know, there are four elements to the earth, so four must be a very earthly number. There's fire, there's water, there's air, and there's material. Earth. You know, they're, 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 and, and so there are four corners of the earth because there are four elements, so those have to go together. So you see the mysticism behind that number four and the four winds that blow? And this all, this is a Pythagorean thought. It's a real mystical stuff. And maybe that's the answer to life. Maybe the life answer and the way we stay focused in is found in mysticism. You want to find your place in earth? You want to find something significant? Start reading your horoscope. Maybe that's the way the planets align. Go for lunch and get a fortune cookie. I opened one up the other day. Said, help, I'm locked in a Chinese fortune cookie factory. Maybe, okay, not really. Yeah, that's a bad joke. That's from Dr. Bob. Um, so, you know, maybe I can find the mystical answer to life. Okay? That didn't work for him either. So then he went to Plato. Plato. Now that's a thinking man's man. Student of Socrates, who wrote about Socrates' death, came up with some brilliant theories. Teacher of Aristotle. Came up with some theories of forms. Came up with the idea that all of this Greek mythology is rubbish. That there really is something we'll call God. But he's so far and removed from our universe. He's very remote. The theological word is he's transcendent. He transcends. He is, he, is, he is removed and above all. And, and, and he's, he's mathematically constant because this universe has order to it. And he created this universe. And he's spirit. He's not body. And, and he's made our souls. And our souls pre-exist their lives in this body. Plato... Ultimately, after Justin becomes a Christian, Justin's convinced that Plato actually was influenced by Moses in the Old Testament, even though Plato was living in Greece a few hundred years before Christ. He certainly could have had access to it. But such novel ideas. And, and Justin doesn't know Christianity yet, but Justin is following Plato, and he's thinking this may be the answer. The answer to life may just be to stay brainy. I emailed someone yesterday. I was trying to get my uh, PowerPoint for my, to open for my uh, closing argument tomorrow. And so I sent this email out. said, can anybody help me? Here's what I'm, I'm trying to do. And then I figured out how to do it. Someone emailed me and said, uh, here's how you do it. I emailed back and said, I'm a nerd. Uh, I'm becoming a nerd. I figured it out all by myself. <laughs> At which point I got an email back that said, you're a lifetime member of the U.S. Chess Federation and you say you're becoming a nerd? <laughs> Maybe the answer is to stay brainy. 
You know, I read, um, uh, I'm, I'm kind of real down on the news right now because I've been kind of swamped, but, but I got on the internet um, one, one, <laughs> three o'clock one morning this week, and I noticed that they've now got more proof of the Big Bang Theory. Okay, did y'all see this? Okay, here it is. A few quadrillion years ago, all of matter, everything, everything, not just me and Lewis, but everything, all of the universe, all existed in something the size of a marble. <laughs> Which is the first time I've been thin in a long time. Um, all existed in something the size of a marble. And in a trillionth of a second, kabam! Expanded to the universe we have now. I'm sitting there thinking... Okay, that's really hard to believe. I mean, I just think about it. Everything is... And then in a trillionth of a second, kabam! But, you know, some people, man, they just stay brainy. They just, just stay, keep the, get so intellectual, they're beyond matters of faith. They're beyond anything so simplistic as God in the Bible. Maybe if we stay brainy, we've got the answer. The problem is, all of this, that's a 30-year-old guy. Got him off the internet. Don't know who he is, but he looks kind of nice. <laughs> you figure, 30 years old, at the age of 30, Justin is walking on the beach when an old man comes up to him and engages him in a philosophical conversation seeing he's got a robe on. And the old man tells him about Jesus Christ. And the old man explains to him, on your checklist of things you've tried to find the answers to life, you've missed something. You've tried to avoid emotion. Didn't work. You tried staying busy. It didn't work. You tried nouveau deepness. Oh, I'm just going to be really deep and mystical. Didn't work. You tried intellectualism and Plato, and it didn't work. Let me introduce you to Jesus. Because with Jesus, Justin has answers to his philosophical questions with faith and reason. It's not just some, hey, check your brain out. You know, we have hat racks on the back for church, so when you come in, you can take your head off and leave it there while you worship, brainless. He says, we have faith and we have reason for our faith. Justin, look at it. I don't like that icon picture because he looks depressed. And I just don't think Justin would have been, maybe right when he was going to be martyred or something. So, <laughs> Justin uses, God uses Justin to show the place of faith to an educated Greek. Now think about this for a minute. Paul came, and Paul was the man for the day, and, and, and God through Paul brought the gospel not just to Jew, but to Gentile, and the church created this movement. But Judaism has divorced itself from the faith of Christ by the time Justin's around. And there are people who need to receive the Word of God who are educated in the Greek education system who don't know Genesis from Zechariah. They don't know the Old Testament. 
They don't have Old Testament faith. They don't have even the common foundation of faith that we see among the unchurched in America. Because it hasn't been part of their history. And God takes Justin, this 30-year-old guy, who's tried all the different philosophies that were in vogue in his system, in his day, and brings him to the truth in Jesus Christ, and then says, now you're my man to go serve this truth up to the unbelieving Greek world that's still following all those different things. I'm telling you, everything, what, what God did through Justin is, makes me just fall down on my knees and say, I'm not worthy to be on the planet with the God who's doing this stuff. But what he did through Justin is the same thing he does through each one of us. Everything you've got in your life or everything you don't have in your life, God puts together to use to, to, to be effective. We've got this uh, 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 three weeks coming up dedicated to how we can better share Jesus with people. And I'm here to tell you, there is, this is the story of church history, is sharing Jesus. And that's what Justin was. Justin writes this apology. He writes it around 155-ish. Some scholars think it's after Polycarp was martyred and he's just pulling his hair out saying, how can you let this happen? And so he writes it to the emperor Antoninus Pius and his philosopher sons, Marcus Aurelius and Lucretius. And, and, and I love the way he titles it because he calls the emperor by name. And he also includes the Roman Senate and the Roman... I mean, he writes it to everybody, but it's really targeted to Antoninus Pius and his philosopher sons. Because Justin's going to write about philosophy and piety. And he plays on their names and titles the whole apology, the whole uh, document. He writes, on behalf of those unjustly hated and grossly abused, myself being one of them. And he writes to the emperor. And this was not the kind of thing like we've got today where the emperor wouldn't get it. It would show up at the emperor's doorstep. They didn't letter write all the time. They didn't have 650 emails a day to sort through. When you got a letter, it was important. The emperor, he reigns over an empire of a few million people. You know, we don't have 250 million in the country. So he gets it, most likely. And what Justin says is, I'm not asking for sympathy. I'm not asking for pity. I just want justice. If you're really pious, like your name is, if you're really a philosopher who loves truth, like your two boys claim in their titles, then you need to understand what I'm writing. Because I'm writing for truth, and I'm writing for justice, and I'm writing for piety. And here's the way he lays out his lesson. He says, first, I'm going to defend against the charges that have been brought against Christians. And I'm going to show you why they're not true. And then I'm going to explain what the truth is about those charges. And finally, I'm going to tell you why your brain ought to embrace my faith. And he does. Starts by defending the charges. First charge, atheism. He says, how can you say we're atheists? How can you say a Christian is an atheist? We worship the creator of the universe. We ignore these pagan myths, but so did Socrates or Plato. So did most philosophers, and so probably do you. He goes a step further and he says, you know those idols aren't real. 
Come on, emperor. You know the people who are making this stuff. They take a chunk of wood and they carve it and now you're supposed to worship it? You think that's real? The only reality at all to the mythological system of the Romans and the Greeks is how demons may have come in and influenced people to do it. He was a big believer in demons. Big believer. He says, you know, second charge, immorality. You're going to indict us for immorality? Let's lay it out there. Don't believe what you hear. You check into it. If you check into it and you see we're doing that immoral stuff, yeah, kill us. Because those aren't the real ones. The real ones aren't doing it. The real ones not only avoid adultery, they avoid lust. The real ones not only don't fornicate, but if they were fornicating before they became Christians, they become chaste. He says, I'll show you some 60 and 70 year old people that are still chaste. He says, we may have been greedy before we met the Lord, but after we met the Lord, we took what we have and we gave it to the needy and we tried to share it with people as we saw fit. We didn't live to be money grubbers. Races, different sets of people, we're colorblind in the church. We may have been bigots before we met the Lord, but in Jesus Christ, there is no difference between Jew, Gentile, slave, free, red, yellow, black, and white. They are precious in His sight. It's not just a song. It's the truth. Don't believe what you hear. We're people who are confident God will provide for us tomorrow. We're people who get hit and turn the other cheek. We're people who get asked to walk a mile and will walk two miles. We're people who peacefully pay our taxes because Jesus said, whose face is on the coin? It's Caesar. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. By the way, in 155 AD, this fellow's got a great command of the Gospels. He's quoting the Sermon on the Mount. He's quoting the Gospel accounts. One of his students, a fellow named Tatian, will come to write the first synopsis of the Gospels where he puts them all together to show how they all fit in together. Very early. Okay. Third charge against the Christians, that you're disloyal to the state. He says, let me tell you something here. It's true we're only going to worship God. We worship God only, but in all other things we gladly serve you. We're not worshiping anyone except God, but we'll gladly serve you and do whatever you'd like us to do beyond that. And then... Having defended against the charges, he explains the truth. He says, the truth of the matter is, Jesus is the Logos. I don't have time for this. We're going to miss a bunch of this uh, if I do. Logos was um, the reason and logic behind the universe in Greek philosophy talk. And, and the sons, at least, and probably the emperor himself was familiar with these people who'd written about the Logos being the logic behind the universe, the way the universe works. He says, Jesus is that. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus was crucified, died, and rose again. And the reason there's evil in the world is because of Satan and demons. I mean, he just lays it out there. So he defends against the charges, he explains the truth, and then he provides his basis for believing. And the principal basis he has is prophecy. He says, look at the Old Testament. 
And I love the way he does this. He says to him, he says, you may not be familiar with the Old Testament, but King Ptolemy of Egypt, about 250 years ago, 300 years ago, had it translated, and it's in the library in Alexandria if you want to go check it out. So you've got it in Greek, you send one of your minions and you get you a copy of it and you see if this stuff wasn't written 250 years ago translated and, 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 and look at it. Because you're going to find in Micah, you Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people. And Bethlehem is a pedunk little town of a thousand people. But Jesus Christ is from there. And if you doubt that, check the census records. Because Quininius has the census records. See, we can't do that today. But you don't write the Roman emperor and tell him, this is the way it is. If you doubt the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem, just go check the census records. It's on file. That's why they had to go to Bethlehem. Because in Emperor Augustus' era, there was the census being taken. And Quininius has the census records and the birth of Jesus Christ. You'll find the account there that the family was there. Then he says, Genesis 49, the ruler shall not depart from Judah. Jesus didn't. He'll be the expectation of the nations. Even though he doesn't leave Judah, all the nations will come to expect and worship Him, which is why we're everywhere. He says, out of Numbers and Isaiah, a star shall rise out of Jacob, and a flower shall spring forth from the root of Jesse, and upon His arm will the nations hope. He says, it's all written hundreds of years before Jesus. It's written in Isaiah 7.14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they'll call His name God with us. He says, you got any questions about that? Just check it out. It's in the Septuagint. He doesn't use the word Septuagint. Then he says, a child is born to us and a young man given to us and the government will be upon his shoulders, Isaiah 9, 6. They pierced my hands and my feet. They cast lots for my clothing, Psalm 22. He says, you have any doubts about that? You go look at the records of Pontius Pilate because he's documented the crucifixion. Those records were still there for them. You don't send the emperor to something like that unless it's legitimate. I get great inspiration from the fact that this record exists of someone who's writing to the emperor, someone who knows their brain is in it. And they're writing saying, man, check it out here, check it out here, check it out here. This is just 100 years old when he's writing this. He says, you've got those records, you go check it out. I'll tell you, you can go check out in the courthouse. I can start citing cases that are 100 years old. You can go check the records out and they're there. You want to know who owned the land that you're living on right now, whether you rent or pay taxes as an owner? You can go check the courthouse records and the deeds will go back that long. He's saying, go check it out. This is there. It says, your king comes to you meek and riding upon a donkey. <laughs> All right, so the guy wasn't perfect. He says that's in uh, the prophet Zephaniah. He's wrong, it was Zechariah. But he got the words right. Okay, He says, consider the Christians before Christ. Justin Martyr thought Socrates was a Christian before Christ, like Abraham. The logos, the logic, the reason, the revelation and the truth that he had was from God. In Justin Martyr's mind, Jesus is the author of truth. Jesus is truth. So whatever truth you've got, you've got some bit of Jesus. They just didn't know that's what they had.
what he says. Final notes on this. He gives an accounting of what baptism was, and, and it's very much like the Didache. I've got some more information about it in the notes so you can read it. Likewise, he gives the most extensive explanation of how the Lord's Supper is being done since the Didache and 150 AD. And it's interesting because it adds some things. When the, the, the ruler or the bishop would bless the, the elements, if people couldn't come, every Sunday they took the Lord's Supper. That's what he says. And if the people couldn't come on that Sunday to take it after the elements were blessed, they'd take it to the shut-ins. Interesting. And then he says, and this is actually at the start of the letter, but I love it and I put it at the end of the lesson. Emperor, you may be able to kill us, but you're not able to hurt us. You may be able to kill us, but you can't hurt us. Points for home. Christ truly gives life meaning that you'll never find anywhere else. You won't find it in emotion. You won't find it in a book. You won't find it in, in your heart until Jesus Christ comes. God is transcendent. But what Plato missed is God's also not just above the universe. He's in our midst as well. He's imminent. We'll deal with that later when we deal with later theology. God is transcendent. God is imminent. God's removed from everything, but he's also in everything at the same time. And faith in Christ is a rational answer. It's not a cop-out. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for the provision you've given us to help guide our lives through the lives of saints that have gone before. Your hand has moved in history. Your hand is writing history today. And we are your ink by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. And in that we stand in awe and appreciation and praise to you. In Jesus, amen.